Our scripture passage today comes from the gospel according to Matthew. It's chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Before we read this, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and gracious Father, Lord, who have given us all that we need, Lord, not only to live but to thrive as your children. We come to you today and approach your word, Lord, in solemn humility. We come today and we accept, accept these things you have given us as the only true and right and perfect rule for our life. Lord, we know we cannot understand this word for us unless the spirit that once illuminated this would illuminate us again. So we pray, we pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit upon our hearts and our minds and upon what we read today that we may hear, that we may read, and that we may understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Listen now to the word of the Lord. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to play a little game with you real quick. We're going to play a game of criminal or victim. All right, I'm going to give you a scenario, and I want, by a show of hands, to tell me if you think they're a criminal or they're a victim. Now, th this scenario I'm going to give you is a real case. It's a real case from American history. It happened back in the 70s, and it is one of the strangest, most difficult cases for people to wrap their heads around. Um, for those of you who were alive in the time, you might remember Patty Hearst and the strange circumstances that uh, involved and surrounded her life. Now, I'm going to give you a little scenario about it, and I want you to say criminal or victim, but do not vote based on what you know, but just on what I tell you. Like I said, y'all of you might know the case, and you might know what happened. Don't base your voting just on that, not yet, just on what I tell you, okay? Y'all got that? Y'all good? Criminal or victim? Patty Hearst, April 15, 1974. She walks into a bank along with a group of other people she had joined called the SLA. They stand for the Symbionese Liberation Army. They walk into the Hibernia Bank with machine guns, and they hold the bank up. And there's no doubt Patty Hearst was there. They got her on video wearing a wig, right? And she's holding a gun, and she's pointing it at patrons, and she's demanding money. And the SLA, they get away with over $10,000. Not a bad take for 1974. So what do you think, based on what I've told you? Let me show a hands if you think she's a criminal. How's that, right? Anyone think she's a victim there? Just based on, nah, it doesn't really sound like she's a victim. 
But I told you this was a complicated case, right? It's a very complicated case. So let's go back, rewind to February, early February of that same year, 1974. Patty Hearst, she's 19 years old, okay? 19 years old. She's living, she's a student at Berkeley. She's living in an apartment with her fiance, a guy named Steve Weed. And in the middle of the night, gunmen break into her house, break into her apartment. They beat her boyfriend up. He's, he's, they, he's got blood coming. They beat him almost unconscious. And at gunpoint with mask on, they take Patty Hearst, tie her up. They gag her, put a blindfold on her face, and they kidnap her. Patty is shoved into the trunk of a car, and she's driven to a secret location, and it is the SLA, the same group that she's going to rob the bank with a few months later. But right now, she's just a frightened 19-year-old. They throw her in a closet. They have her blindfolded. They never, she never can see their faces. According later to her testimony that she was abused and at one point even raped by her captors. And for two months, she's fed propaganda from the SLA. They give her literature to read, and they tell her that they're part of this great revolution. Right? They're going to close prisons. They're going to end monogamy. They're going to overthrow capitalism. And, and after two months of this, Patty Hearst changes her name to Tanya. And she joins the SLA. And she sends a tape out. They called it a communique. And that she's now a member of this guerrilla army to overthrow capitalism. All right, show of hands. Who thinks she was a victim? Anybody? Who says just pure criminal? Anybody says just pure criminal? Got a few up there. Yeah, yeah, all right. It gets even more complicated. Okay, after the bank robbery, for a year and a half, Patty Hearst stays with the SLA even though she has multiple chances to escape. In one instance, they were robbing a, a hardware store. And Patty Hearst is the getaway driver. They put the keys in the car, they leave it running, and they all go walk into the hardware store to rob it. And Patty Hearst is sitting right there by herself with a running car. She can put it and drive anytime she wants and drive off. But she doesn't. In fact, when, when her friends or her comrades are coming out and they get caught by the owner, Patty Hearst sticks a machine gun out of the window and fires at the owner of the hardware store. Just riddles the sign with machine gun bullets. In a year and a half, she's a loyal member of the SLA. When she's finally brought in, she's not brought in, rescued as a kidnapped victim. She's arrested around, along with the rest of her comrades. And they got pictures of her as she comes in, giving her fist of defiance and handcuffs. And in fact, when the police asked her, what is your job? She says, I'm an urban gorilla. So, victim or criminal? Who's not sure? Anybody not sure? Yeah, it gets complicated. It really does. This is one of the most complicated cases America has really ever been faced with. If you're not sure about where to put Patty Hearst as victim or criminal, trust me, you're not alone. When it happened, the whole country wrestled with it. And they wrestled with it for years and years after it. I mean, it's so easy to see a victim. I mean, think about this, 19 years old, and you're taken at gunpoint from the only family that you know, from the safety of your home, you're put into a closet, you're abused, you're traumatized. So easy to see a victim. But on the other hand, it's easy to see a criminal, too. She did, by her own free will, carry a machine gun into the bank. 
She fired at innocent people. She helped plan acts of terrorism along with her friends at the SLA. If we look at this question, was she a criminal or a victim? You can't avoid the conclusion that she was both. Was she a sinner or a victim of sin? And the answer is both. See, that's what we hate about this case. We really don't. People don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable because this case defies easy categories, and we like easy categories. Human beings like to categorize things. We, 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 we find where they belong, and we put them in. These are mammals. These are reptiles. These are amphibians. And when we see something that defies categories, we really hate it. You know, mammal, reptile, uh-oh, duck-billed platypus. What do we do with that? We like our categories. There's a black and white to the world, right? There's a good and there's an evil, and there is a clear line between good and evil, and never the twain shall mix. We have e categories of enemy and friend. Friends are the people we like. Friends are the people who are nice to us, and so we're nice to them. Enemies are the people that we don't like. They're mean to us, and so we're mean to them too. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. And if you're a Christian, you have another definition, another category you get, sinner and saint. Of course, sinners, they're the bad guys. They're the evil ones. They're defying the will and the love of God. They're disobeying his law. There's no reason they should do that. They're our enemies. The saints, well, that's us. Look around. We're the saints. We're the ones here on Sunday morning. We're not out jogging or going to breakfast or doing yard work. We're the here in the house of God like we're supposed to be. We're the good guys, people we like. We like to be nice to us. It's easy. Good categories. Makes sense. No confusion. Case closed. It's easy. But it's not always true. Cases like the Patty Hearst case remind us how murky life can be sometimes. And how difficult our categories can be to truly and accurately represent human life. See, we like to draw lines. We like to put people in categories. And because of that, it makes us very hard, makes it very difficult to accept this command of Jesus that we have heard today, perhaps the hardest command that he's given us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love the bad guys. Love the people on the other side of the line. Pray for those people who are mean and nasty and are awful to you and say terrible things and do terrible things. It's a hard command because it makes no sense whatsoever. Why would we love people like that? Why would we, the good guys, love the bad guys? Well, Jesus, of course, gives us the reason. He tells us exactly why we should love our enemies. In verse 44, he says, Love your enemies so that you will become sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies so you can become the true children of God. See, Jesus reminds us that we're, we're called to a different way of life. That when, when he calls us to be the saints, when he calls us to be the good guys, he calls us to be different in every single way possible. 
He calls us to a new way of life, which means that's new expectations. We're not to act like everybody else does. We're to act different. And this, in fact, was a command that God gave his people from the very beginning when he was forming the nation of Israel, all the way back in the early parts of the Old Testament, back in the Deuteronomy. He says, don't be like the nations out there. They're going to be all different, all around you, these different nations. You can't act like them. I'm calling you to act different. I'm calling you to be holy. That means you can't be like them. You have to be like me. I'm calling you to a new way of life. A whole different way to behave. It's just like your mom used to say. You know, when you would say, hey, everybody else is doing it. And what did your mom always say? Well, you're not everybody else. We don't do things that way. And she was right. Because God says the same thing to you. I don't care what everybody else is doing. That's not how you do it. You're my people. And the heart of his covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you. I will watch over you. I will even grant you salvation and eternal life. But you, as you're part of the covenant, you have to act like my people. To act like my people means you have to act like me. And how does God treat his enemies? It says he makes the sun shine on the sinner and the saint alike. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, your God shows the same compassion and common love and common grace to his enemies as he does to his friends. Yeah, we're the people of God. Yeah, we're the good guys. But there's a common grace and love that God shows to us that he shows to the people that hate him. The people that defy him. The people that say he doesn't exist. And if he does, they're angry with him. And they think he's an awful, terrible God. Shows the same common grace and love. To them as to us. Sometimes he blesses them incredibly. Sometimes he blesses them seemingly more than he blesses us. And if we're going to be like him, we have to imitate him. And he says, it's nothing great to be nice to your friends. So everybody does that. He says, even sinners, even tax collectors do that. If you're nice just to the people who are nice to you, big deal. Everybody does that. That's just very base, entry-level, common human decency. It's nothing great. He says, if you're good to people who are just good to you, big deal. Who cares? Everybody does that. Common, basic human decency. You're not doing anything great if you're just nice to people who are nice to you. You were called to be different. You were called for something more for that. He called you to love your enemies and to pray and to show favor and to goodwill even to the people that are nasty and mean and awful to you. But even understanding that doesn't make it easy. I mean, it's still hard because these people are mean to us. It goes against every instinct for us to be nice to somebody who is mean to us. And the last thing I want to do is appeal to God with prayers for somebody I hate. I mean, I kind of only feel like I get a few requests that are answered anyway, right? I mean, I don't want to waste a good one on an enemy, on someone I can't stand. I want to save that for me. Any kind of good grace I've built up and keep it for me and my kids and my family. Not for that jerk who's 
always making me mad. I think what makes this really hard for us is because of how we look at people. As long as we keep putting people into categories, friend, enemy, sinner, saint, victim, criminal. As long as we do that, it will be very hard for us to see them differently. And if we don't see them differently, it's so hard to treat people differently. And until we can start to see people just a little bit, just a little bit like God sees them, it will be impossible to treat them as God treats them. I mean, look at your enemy. Take your enemy, okay? He's mean. He's low down. He's petty. He's selfish. He's unrepentant. He is a sinner. And you're probably right. He probably deserves everything that you say about him. But let me ask you this. What made him that way? What do you think made him that way? I wonder if you were to look with a little bit of understanding and compassion and try to dig a little bit deeper into that person you hate. I can almost guarantee you, 100%, you'll find a victim. I bet somewhere of the past of everyone that you've ever known, everyone that you've hated, everyone that just hated you, you can look back and you'll find some place in their life where they were wounded, where they were hurt, where they were ridiculed, where they were outcasts, where they were told they were worthless, where they were felt like they were unloved or sometimes even abused in ways that, that you and I, we've never experienced and never understood. Maybe they, they, they've been told these awful things by friends. Maybe they've been told all of these things by, by some of their, their schoolmates or their brothers or sisters. Sometimes they've been hurt by their own family, by their own mothers and fathers and uncles and brothers and aunts and their grandparents and people that were supposed to love them just treated them terribly. If you look a little bit deeper, you'd find a victim. That doesn't excuse their bad behavior. No, it doesn't. At some point, everyone who sins and decides to sin has decided to choose to act the way they do and to accept it. But it does make things a little more complicated, doesn't it? It does tend to blur the fine lines that we like to draw between everybody and how they live. We should all be able to sympathize with that. Shouldn't we? I mean, all of us are victims of sin. Is there, is there anybody here that can say they've never been victimized by sin? They've never been victimized or hurt by evil people, by awful things that just awful people do to us? Is there anybody here that says that we don't have any past trauma? Sometimes it cuts so, so deep. It continues to hurt us even in this memory. Is there anybody here that can say that, that there's not some behavior that we do that's part of that trauma? Then we can look back and in our worst moments we say, well, I did that because, or I act that way because, or I say these things because. We remember the terrible things that were done to us as children, as adults. Just in many ways, human beings hurt other human beings all the time. Does that give us an excuse? It doesn't. We're victims of sin, but at some point we choose to act that way despite the trauma that may or may not have happened to us. See, I'm not trying to excuse any behavior. And you shouldn't either. 
to just excuse the sin and say, well, it's just because of something that happened to them. Oh, well, it's just because of what happened to them. Oh, well, we understand. Don't worry about it. To do that cheapens God's grace. It really does. To just dismiss it cheapens what Christ did for us. In the book of Romans, it says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Not while you were good, not while you were on the path to healing, while you were an enemy, while you were a sinner, while you hated God, while you had darkness in your heart. At that moment, Christ died for you. At that moment, God reconciled himself to you through the blood of his son, Jesus. Does it excuse our behavior? Absolutely not. Sin is sin and always will be sin. We chose to act the way we did. What it does is show God's compassion. What it does is show God's mercy. He gave grace to people who didn't deserve it. Now I know we can't act just like God. We can't have his same level of, of, of grace and compassion. And we can't see people as God sees them truly. But maybe, maybe if we tried to look a little differently. Maybe if we tried to show some understanding and go just, just a level lower on the people that we hate. I think we could do better. Maybe if we stop trying to put people in categories so it makes sense to us and just accept them as they are and see things more like God sees them. That we're sinners and see everybody as sinners, but we're also victims of sin. Because of that, we show compassion. Because of that, we can show understanding. And this makes this command maybe not quite as hard. We can see it's good can see it's truly good. Patty Hearst was arrested in September 1975. And when she went before a jury, they saw a criminal. She was sentenced to seven years in prison for her participation in the Hibernia Bank robbery. But I told you it was a complicated case, didn't I? And I promise it is. Two years into her sentence, she was uh, commuted by then-President Jimmy Carter. And in 2001, she received a full pardon from Bill Clinton. Now, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the commutation of her sentence. There was a lot of controversy surrounding Bill Clinton giving her a full pardon. People were very angry about it. And I don't know what the answer, right answer is politically or in terms of the, the, the justice system, what Bill Clinton could have, should or shouldn't have done. And I don't want you to take this the wrong way, what I'm about to say, okay? Because I don't know how you feel about Bill Clinton. But whatever you feel about him, symbolically, for what I'm talking about today, Bill Clinton, he made a very godly act in pardoning Patty Hearst. When he pardoned her, he did a very godly thing. And, and maybe that makes some of you angry hearing me say that. It made people angry then. Because they said, Patty Hearst didn't deserve to be pardoned. And you're right. She didn't. Do you know anybody else like that? Do you know anyone else that maybe got pardoned and they didn't deserve to be pardoned at all? Do you know anybody else who had a full commutation of their sentence, a full pardon of their crimes, the, the, the slate wiped clean, and they didn't deserve it at all? I'll give you a hint. You do know somebody. 
It's you. You got a pardon. And you didn't deserve it. You received a full pardon for your crimes when you were still an enemy of God. Are we victims of sin? Or are we sinners? It's both. Such is the human condition. And Christ tells us today that if we want to be children of God, we've got to act a little more like God. And we don't excuse sin. God has never excused a single sin. And victimhood doesn't give it as an excuse. But it means loving people despite their sin. It means loving people even when they sin against us. He's asked us to love our enemies. It may be the hardest command in the Bible. It's hard, but it's not impossible. With his power, with his help, with us simply remembering the love that he showed us, we can be more loving. We can be more like him. We can love our enemies. And we can pray for those who hate us. And by his grace and help, we can become a little bit more like he made us to be. Children not just of a living God, but a loving God. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.